Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I'm really enjoying this study as we go through Philippians. Uh, Every Wednesday I write uh, sermons for the Wednesday night series. This one happened to be written a few weeks ago, but just to come to Wednesday, sit down at my desk and uh, begin to write. uh, This week I was writing on verses 20 and 21, talking about being a citizen of heaven And it's just a wonderful study that we have here in Philippians. It's a great book for all Christians to study because here Paul gives us some very practical considerations about how to live for Christ. He explores different types of things that will make us happy as we live in a world that is in trouble, in a world that is without Christ. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a A great Bible expositor has an excellent commentary on this book. And really, if if you have a chance to purchase any of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones' books, you'd you'd be the better off for it. But he has a a commentary on this book that has, has a very interesting name, a good name. He calls it The Life of Joy and Peace. Unfortunately, it's out of print right now, and it's very, very expensive if you can find a copy of it. But The Life of Joy and Peace. And I thought about the name of that commentary, um, and it almost seems like a contradiction when you consider the, the circumstances under which Paul wrote this letter. This is one of the prison letters. Uh, Paul could have been put to death at any moment, and yet he's living a life of joy and peace. And we wonder, how is it possible for Christians to live like that in such difficulty? And this is really what Philippians explores. In the first part of this book, Paul lays out doctrinal considerations, and we've learned that that is Paul's methodology. He always speaks about doctrine first, then he follows that up with practical applications. And this is where we are right now. We're in those practical applications, and as we do, we keep running across these little gems that we find in the text. I mean, just little nuggets that are worthy for us to just stop for a moment and to spend some time considering. And that's what we're doing right now. We came to the 16th verse, and really I guess this kind of started with verse number 15 a few weeks ago, and we stopped to consider the entirety of this book that we're studying. And I'm not just speaking about the book of Philippians, I'm speaking about the whole Bible, all 66 books, the whole collection of Scripture, which is really God's revelation of himself. The Scripture's is what tells us how we are to glorify God. That's the chief purpose that we have in life, to glorify God. And here's what we find that the Bible does. It gives us the means by which we can do that very thing. Many of the greatest men in history have spoken and given tributes to the Bible about what a valuable book that it is. And many of them say that that the Bible is the most important possession that mankind has. Last year when Brother Doug Gamble was here, you may remember, he uh, did a presentation on God and country, and he mentioned some of the quotes of of famous people in American history, some from our founding fathers, uh, some of the things that they had to say about the Bible. For instance, George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. John Adams, our Uh, Second president said, suppose a nation in some distant region would take the Bible as the only set of laws. What a utopia, what a paradise this would be. 
Many, many years later, Theodore Roosevelt said, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education. Listen to what Woodrow, Wel- Woodrow Wilson said. Woodrow Wilson, he said, there are a good number of problems before the American people today and before me as president, but I expect to find the solution in the study of the scriptures. Can you imagine a president today saying something like that? If you had a candidate for president and said, I'm going to find the solution to America's problems in the scripture, he would never get elected today. Calvin Coolidge said, the foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in this country. Now, listen, think about that statement for just a moment. Let me say it again. The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in this country. And what has happened in about 70 years or so or 80 years since Calvin Coolidge, these principles have ceased to be practically universal in our society. And what do we have? A total breakdown of society. So great men have recognized the value of the Bible, but the value of the Bible is not established by what great men have said about it. The value of the Bible is established by what God himself says about it. Here's what Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now there, Jesus himself says that God's word brings us everlasting life. It's the word of God that God uses to wash and to cleanse our hearts so that we become righteous in his presence. So I think it's fitting for us to stop and just contemplate how God's word works, his word in us and what his word does for us. And that's what we've been using Philippians chapter 3, verse number 16, to do. That's been the text verse for two sermons so far on the rule of faith and practice. So tonight we're going to finish up a few thoughts on this subject, the third part of this sermon, the rule of faith and practice. Now let's stand as we read God's Word. And Philippians chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 is where we're reading tonight. Let us therefore... As many as be perfect, and remember that word here means to be mature. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those who are here to uh, listen to your word tonight, and we just thank you for the word of God, for the Bible, to what a precious book that it is, the revelation of Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, all that we need to know about you. Just bless in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, this evening what I want to do is finish up the last two points in the outline uh, about God's Word. The, the Word of God is our rule of faith and practice. It's the guidebook for our lives. It tells us how we can live within God's will. Here Paul says in verse 16, Let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Christians who are walking 
by God's word are always walking in the same direction. When you're walking in God's word, you will be walking in the same direction with all Christians. And here is how we find our unity in the faith. The Bible is the very thing that holds us together. It's the glue that holds us together. Here in Berean Baptist Church, if you are a person of the Bible, if you read your Bible, if you study your Bible, if you are faithful to God's Word, if you listen and you practice God's Word, I promise you, you will never be out of step with this church. You'll never be out of step with one another. Now, in the Philippian church, as in our church, there are some people who haven't yet learned all that they need to know about what we believe and practice in the church. There are people that are in different stages of development. They're learning different things as we go through our messages. And so there are some folks that you need to learn all these things that we're teaching so we can walk by the same rules, so we can have the same understanding of Scripture. And this is what the teaching from the pulpit is all about. The the ministry here is to develop a system of doctrine that's faithful and uncompromising to God's Word so that we might live what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the life of joy and peace. And let me just add this as well, that our doctrine, which has an exalted view of God, is far more satisfying than any doctrine or system of doctrine that elevates man. When you elevate man, you will always get failure. When you elevate God, you will always get success because God never fails. And even those who hate the doctrines that we preach, that hate the doctrines of grace, they still admit that there is no higher view of God than what we preach. Now, we have so far covered Uh, three different areas of God's Word, being the rule of faith and practice. And let me just mention these briefly one more time before we go on to something new tonight. The first one that we talked about was the inspiration of the Word. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. We discussed two words under inspiration that are important to us. The first one is the word breathed, and the second is preserved. God's word was breathed out from God. And that means that God has inspired his word. He breathed into men as they wrote the scriptures. He inspired them to write. And the words that God wrote were holy and they were perfect. And men wrote those words down. But as we know, we don't have the original manuscripts today. We don't have any manuscript that one of the original writers wrote. Not not the original that they wrote. And so none of those has survived to the present And what we do have, rather, are copies of God's Word, and we have translations of God's Word. So it's important for us to understand that down through all these centuries, from that time that they were originally penned until this very hour, that God has preserved His Word. And He's preserved it so that we would have the same understanding of it, that we would have the same rule of faith and practice that our our forefathers had, that the apostles had, that the church has had all down through its history. All men in all ages have had the preserved word of God accurately preserved so that we walk by the same rule of faith and practice as the apostles did. We believe that for English-speaking people, God's word has been preserved for us in the King James Bible. Now, we don't believe that the King James Bible is an inspired translation. We do believe that it is a preserved translation, and we can trust it as God's revelation to man. 
And that's not saying that there aren't any other translations of God's Word. It's to say, rather, that the King James is the best translation that we have in English. So does the King James ever use a word uh, that couldn't have been better rendered for English-speaking people today? Well, of course not. And that's why when we preach the Word of God, when we preach from the King James Bible, we're constantly changing different words to help you to understand it better. And that's perfectly acceptable because the English is old and we need to uh, make sure that people understand it. But the Word of God is preserved. We have confidence that we have the same word that was given to the apostles. Then the second area that we discussed was the conversion by the word. And we also had two words that we considered about conversion. These are operation and regeneration. The Holy Spirit operates with the word to bring man to regeneration. Peter said, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So the Holy Spirit uses God's word to translate us from the kingdom of sin into the glorious liberty of the kingdom of Christ. Then the third area that we talked about was the sanctification by the word. And we have two words here as well. And these are conviction and separation. The Word is the means of identifying sin. The Word is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict our hearts of our sinfulness, of our terrible, exceeding sinfulness. And then, when we see that sinfulness in the light of God's Word, when sin is identified, then the believer separates himself from that sin. To sanctify means to set apart. And so God sets us apart to holiness, and He makes us vessels that are useful in His service. And so without the Word, and especially without God's law, we cannot identify false ways. It's exactly what David said. He said, the Word is for this purpose. He said, through the Word I get understanding, and through the Word I hate every false way. Well, now we're ready to take on uh, these last two areas of God's Word that make it our rule of faith and practice. Now, number four, what I want to discuss now is the revelation of the Word. And we covered this a few weeks ago when we were discussing verse number 15. And Paul said in that verse that God would reveal his direction for us. And if you remember, there were three principal methods by which God would do this. And we discussed those methods. Now, what we're going to discuss here, though, in this first term, uh, relates to... The, relates to the purpose of the revelation. Why did God give us this revelation? Well, the first word that I want you to, to look at here is the word will. God's word is the revelation of God's will. And that's what we were talking about, those three methods that God uses to reveal his will. First, there was the external method, and that is by looking at the example of others. The Word of God says to mark those that are walking in the right direction, to mark them as an example, and to follow them. And so what we do is we observe the success of other Christians. And if their life is successful in the way that they live it for God, then we can make that an example for our lives. And we can follow them because if they're successful, we will be successful doing the same things. Then there was a second way that God reveals his will, and that was the internal method. That's through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We pray, we communicate with the Spirit, and our minds are always open to his leadership. Those are two good ways of knowing God's will. But the third way is the one that's the best. And this is what we call the eternal method. The eternal method is to know God's word. 
Because the Bible says itself that it lives and abides forever. So God's word then is the chief revelation of God's will. And God's word is actually what undergirds those first two methods. We identify good examples to follow by seeing how they compare to God's word. So God's word shows us what that good example is. Then also the Holy Spirit uses the word in order, as we said a moment ago, to convict our hearts. It instructs us. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the word. And the word and the spirit are never going to oppose one another. So God's word leads us to know God's will. It's instruction and how we can accomplish that chief purpose, which is to glorify God. So the revelation of the word, then, is to find God's will, and the second is to find God's way. Now, the second uh, term for revelation is the way, and certainly men are confused about the way. Proverbs says, there, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Now, what, what is the way that all people choose? Well, the problem with man is really not a problem of religion. Our problem is not that we hate religion. We love religion. In fact, we're born with religion in our soul. Man instinctively knows that there is a God, and he knows that somehow he must be right with God. I mean, he knows that enough just by the nature of man, the nature that God has put into him. You'll never find people that are natural-born atheists. You have to be educated to be an atheist. Now, I don't mean you have to have higher education. I mean you have to have a warped education. You have to be bent away from God. Somebody has to bend your understanding. Somebody has to mess with your mind before you'll ever come to the conclusion that there is no God. And the proof of this is that you can go to any civilization anywhere in the world and without a Bible and without outside contact with any other civilizations, you will find that all people believe in a God. That's universal, and that's because God has put it into our, in our hearts. God has built man that way. Man believes there is a God. But the problem is he doesn't naturally know who the true God is. You see, if there was ever a person anywhere that could understand the true God by nature, and if that person could be saved without the knowledge of God's word, then we would be foolish to ever send a missionary anywhere in the world. You see, if man by nature can actually find out God and learn how to be saved, learn how to be right with God, then that means men everywhere can learn exactly the same thing. And you find people that, even some Baptist people, who in their foolishness will try to vindicate God's justice, and they say that if man will just look at the light that he has, if he'll just look at the revelation of God, then God will be obligated to give that person more light. He will send him more light. But that's nothing but foolishness because God's word also says that all men are in spiritual darkness. All of them are depraved. All of them are spiritually dead. So nature is never enough to wake a person up from his sinful condition. If it could, then we can kill this whole premise that the word of God is the revelation of God's will and God's way. Now, friends, the right way to God is only determined through God's word. When Paul was traveling through Europe and, and through the, the ancient world around the Roman Empire, what was it that he preached? Did he leave God's word behind? Did he go to people and he said, well, let me show you how that you can perfect your knowledge of God and be saved by a few things here that you've overlooked. No, what Paul did, 
he preached God's Word. He always took the Word with him. He always turned to the Scriptures, and that's where he always found his arguments. That's because the Word is what reveals the right way. Jesus, who is the right way, is found in God's Word. You remember when Philip joined himself to the Ethiopian's chariot? You remember what that man was doing? He was reading God's Word, wasn't he? He was reading God's Word, and yet, reading it, he had not yet found the way. And it wasn't until Philip got into that chariot and began at the same Scripture and preached to him Jesus that that man was able to be saved. Now, think about it for a moment. If that Ethiopian, who had nature to show him who God is, and he was also reading a Bible, he had the Word, and yet he had not found the way then how is it possible that for a person by nature alone without the Word could ever find the way? You see, what happens here is the Holy Spirit has to take that Word, and God reveals Himself to whom He is pleased to reveal Himself. There's no one saved without God's Word. And that ought to establish for us the value of God's Word. Jesus said, He who hears the Word and believes this Word will have everlasting life. Friends, that's why Berean Baptist Church still uses the Bible. I don't know what other people are thinking. I don't know what churches and pastors are thinking when they leave the Bible on the shelf and preachers stand in pulpits and their sermons are made out of telling stories and putting on little skits. They're always worried about this one thing. How can we be culturally relevant? Folks, the Word of God is always culturally relevant. You don't have to do anything to it. All you have to do is preach it. Preach it just like we have it right here. It's, a, it's culturally relevant. It's ever going to be. You can't change God's Word and make it culturally relevant. So the way to eternal life is revealed in the Scripture. And whenever you depart from the Scripture, what you do is you leave people dying in their sins. Nothing else is going to do for salvation but God's way, and that's Jesus Christ. Now, there's a third term that I want to give you about God's revelation, and this is the word wonders. The wonders of God are revealed in the Bible. Now, principally, here I'm speaking about future wonders. There are past wonders, and the past wonders that we read in the Word of God are the basis for our belief in future wonders. God did it in the past, then God can do it in the future. Paul said that one of the reasons that we read the Old Testament... One of the reasons we still have it available for us today is for our learning. It's for our instruction. And what he means there is both the judgments of God that have fallen upon those who sinned and also the fulfillment of God's promises. The Old Testament records prophecies that are fulfilled in the New Testament, promises that came true. And that's a basis for us believing that all of God's promises in the future will come true. So to that, we can add the New Testament. I mean, for us today, we have the completed Bible. We have the New Testament as well. And the New Testament reveals many of these things that God did in the past. But there's also the future aspect of the New Testament. You know it well. We've been studying for weeks and weeks and weeks in the book of Revelation. We have this book in the Bible called Revelation that is principally a prophetic book. And in Revelation, the Bible gives us there something that we can hope for. Paul was looking to the future when he wrote this in Titus 2, verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, I'm glad that I have something to think about. When life is tough, 
When the economy's bad, when your kids mess up, when work is going sour, what do you do? Who do you turn to? Well, we look at the blessed hope. I mean, we think about Jesus is coming back and he's going to deliver us from all of this. He's going to redeem us from all of it. And so we look at a time when Jesus will come back. He'll set all things straight. He'll right the ship that's gone wrong. And that's when he comes to restore all of creation to a pre-fallen state. The Bible reveals those kinds of wonders and in those things we rejoice. And so we read the scriptures and we realize this life isn't all there is. God has prepared a place for us. What does Jesus say in John 14? In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's hope. I'm thankful that we have God's book. We have God's revelation of wonders. Things that are awaiting every child of God. And so the rule of faith and practice turns into the, turns into the root of faith and promise. How could we ever do without God's book? And that's why that I want to make the Bible my life's work. And I think that's the reason why you ought to desire God's word. You ought to cherish God's word because it is the revelation of God and everything that goes with God. Now, there's one more area that we need to cover and then we'll be through with this sort of little mini-series about God's word. The fifth area is the protection of the word. Inspiration, conversion, sanctification, revelation, those are all areas that pertain to God's Word. But I really like this last one, and that's the protection of the Word. Let me give you here three terms about the protection of God's Word. The first one is confidence. God's Word gives me confidence. It builds my confidence. And I suppose this is closely related to what I said about instruction. Paul says we have all of these examples that are in the Old Testament. Uh, Those are for our learning. They're for our admonition. We learn how to walk in the right way. We learn how to walk in the light of the Word. And by seeing what's gone on before us, we have confidence in the blessing of God. I love what the psalmist says. Psalm chapter 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from noisome pestilence. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. Listen, his truth shall be thy shield and buckler. The psalmist says, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High. Now, that is really a psalm about closeness of fellowship with the Lord. And here's the thing that really strikes me about this statement. What he's speaking of here is the God of the Bible. The psalmist is talking about the God of the Bible. Now, perhaps we can't see that as clearly as the ones who originally received this message from the psalmist. And that's because Israel is different than the way that we live today. All around them, they were surrounded by people who were idol worshippers. We don't have the same kind of idolatry that those people had. Now, for sure, there are people today that are in idolatry, but even the ones that live in idolatry, worshiping false gods, what we would call false gods, are really, in fact, claiming that they're worshiping the very same God that we worship. But there are any people that I know of, well, not personally, I suppose there are some who may have an idol in their house, a god of stone or wood or something that they worship, 
But the point I'm really trying to make here about this is that the psalmist here is identifying God, the real God, the one that we put our confidence in. We have the Bible that describes who this God is, the real God. So what's our confidence then? He's our shield and buckler. He's our protection. That's what it says. And the psalmist said the thing that is our shield and buckler and protection is what? God's truth. God's truth. What is God's truth? God's word. Our protection comes from the knowledge of God's word. So here's where we draw our strength and our confidence. We draw hope from this. That's where we place our faith. We do it in the Word of God. Everything else that you put your trust in is nothing but smoke and mirrors. Only God's Word is tried and tested. Only God's Word produces a testimony of faith that you need. Now, along with confidence, there comes another word, and it's the word comfort. I feel protected, and that gives me comfort. If you read a little bit more in this very same psalm, you'll find out that this is the psalm that Satan quoted in the temptation of Christ. Now, Satan used God's words wrongly, but God's word is ever true. The words themselves were true. So if you go on here and you read verses 10 and 12, you'll recognize something. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Do you remember Satan saying that to Jesus in the temptation? And he goes on, thou shalt... They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Now, we know that the secondary application of this psalm, what the psalmist is saying right here, is Jesus. The primary application is the psalmist. And so, as he's writing here, he is actually claiming the same protection that Jesus claims, even though he doesn't know that Jesus is the secondary application. He can't know that just yet, but we see it. And we see it because the New Testament has revealed it. We go over to the book of Matthew and we read it right there. And we find the very same words. And God shows us that that has an application to Jesus Christ. And so we find here there is a double application. There's a double application in this sense that we are in Jesus. Now, we already have the protection of God, but also we are in Jesus. We abide in him. And so whatever Christ receives, we are also going to receive. So God's word... Just knowing the truth, the psalmist says, brings comfort because we know that we're in Christ and we have those angels that are always protecting us. But then there's one last word that we need to consider. This is the word counterfeits. Counterfeits. Now let me bring you back down to earth from that secret place of the Almighty and we come right back down here to the cold reality of terra firma. There are counterfeits out there, folks. And what they do is that they claim that they are of God, and yet they manipulate the Scriptures. They're selective in which Scriptures that they use, and they take Scriptures out of context. Some of those counterfeiters are worse than others. But one thing that a counterfeiter always hates, he hates a systematic approach to Bible doctrine. And so a false, a false teacher detests comparing Scripture with Scripture. But you know this? The Bible has its own built-in defense mechanism. You know what it is? It's the infallibility of Scripture. That means that the Bible is never going to contradict itself. And so, if someone teaches an untruth, 
from the Word of God by pulling the Scripture out of its context, there's going to be someplace else to go to show you that that is not the proper interpretation. The Word of God is infallible. It's not going to cross itself. So anyone who desires to preach the Word of God must be tested by the Word of God. Here's what John says in 1 John. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. How do you test a teacher? Well, interestingly, you do it exactly the same way that those Bereans did it in Acts chapter 17. This ought to be the favorite scripture for Berean Baptist Church. Acts 17, verse 11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And he's talking about the people in Berea. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. Here comes Paul, somebody they never met before. Here comes Paul preaching something new. They haven't heard this before. They haven't heard these kinds of interpretations. It all sounds foreign to them. So what do they do? They go to the infallible Word of God to see if what Paul says is true. Now, in most churches, the Word of God is not the test of doctrine. And the reason it's not is because nobody preaches the Word anymore. Some people don't even pull out the Bible anymore. Nobody studies the Word of God. And so the test is not, does the Word of God say this? The test to most people, does it sound good? Does it sound reasonable? Does it sound acceptable? Does it make God fit into the box that I like God to fit into? And if it does, it's okay. That's the only criterion that needs to be met. Well, what happens when you do that? You lose protection. You lose comfort. You lose the confidence. And you know why? Because now you've removed your confidence from the infallible word that comes from God, and you put your confidence in men who say anything that they want to say. So what do you lose? Well, in the process, you lose the gospel. And when you lose the gospel, friends, all is lost. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which ye are saved. Now, if we're no longer talking about salvation, and we're no longer trying to be saved, then okay, throw the Bible away. Discredit the word. We don't need it. We don't need this rule of faith and practice because it's only given, us, given to us for one thing, and that's to show us the way of salvation. If you don't want salvation, throw the Bible away. And you know that is exactly what churches have done when they stop using the Word of God, when they discard the Bible, they have thrown salvation away. A preacher that no longer preaches the Bible has abandoned salvation. So what do you do? You test every spirit. You try every preacher, you try every teacher by the Word of God. I'm not afraid of that. And neither should anybody who preaches be afraid of being tried by God's Word. You see, I'm protected by God's Word too. I'm protected. If I teach the truth, I'm protected. And if you want to come and speak to me, I want you to know I don't bow to anything but the Word of God. Bring the Word when you want to talk to me. The word's protecting me. The question is, is it protecting you? Is your opinion that you so highly value and hold, is it supported by God's word? Because God's word is the only thing that counts. 
So here we have Paul teaching the Philippians, and he says, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. The common interest that all of us have as God's people is the Word. He doesn't use anything but the Word. It's the Word that governs our faith. So that means I'm not interested in your rules. I'm not interested in the guardrails that you put up. I'm only interested in thus saith the Lord. Now let me close with this thought. We all believe the fundamentals of the faith. I think everybody here, I, have, I, have no que- I don't have any question in my mind, you believe the fundamentals of the faith. But there are some who are in the circle of fundamentalism that they would love to camp on this phrase that I've used, the rule of faith and practice. If I were to ask some of you tonight, you would tell me, I was raised with the rules. I was raised to depend upon the rules. And I found out that there are some people who simply cannot live without rules. They've got to have the rules, and they've got to have this rule book that's three inches thick to tell them whenever they're getting close to sin. And friends, do you know that it's no different from what the Pharisees did with their rules? Do you remember when we talked about this on Sunday morning and getting started uh, just on the Sermon on the Mount, and we talked about this very issue? The rules that the Pharisees kept did not elevate God's laws. They degraded God's law, because what they had done was they had reduced their rules to something that they could keep. Here's something we can keep. And in the process, they lower God's standards down to a standard they can keep. So I've noticed that many of these people in fundamentalism today have established rules that they can keep. And at the very same time, they forget about the weightier matters that the Word of God teaches we should live by. And you know what one of those weightier matters is? It's the issue of humility. Many of those people have become very prideful people. And you know where their pride is? You can grip your seat for this profound revelation I'm about to give you. Their pride is in the fact that they keep their rules. That's where the pride comes from. I keep my rules and you don't. I'm better than you. I keep my rules. So they look down their long noses because you haven't kept their rules. And you know what happens? They have blossomed into the rebirth of lawyers and scribes and Pharisees from the New Testament. You know, the Apostle Paul warned us about this. He said, you better be very careful about where your righteousness comes from because at the moment that you decide that your righteousness comes by the law, by the things that you do, by the rules that you keep, he says, then you have become a debtor to do the whole law. If you're going to live by the law, if that's what, the, if that what keeps you straight, and that's, and that's what you have to have, if you have to have the rules, be ready to keep every single rule because you'll never be righteous with God unless you do. So give me the rule of faith and practice. That is the Bible alone. Keep your rules. I'm not interested in Mount Sinai and Hagar that genders to bondage. Now, thank God tonight if you've been set free from all of that. If you're a person who came out of that and you've been set free from all of that, it's a happy way to live, I can tell you, folks, because why? It's the life of joy and peace. We can follow the Lord without all of that because he'll put it into our hearts. He'll instill it into us if we're true believers without all the man-made rules. So here we have inspiration, we have conversion, sanctification, revelation, protection. And this is why Paul wrote, The Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto all good work. The only thing you need is the Bible. 
That's our only rule of faith and practice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight to preach your word. And Lord, again, we just thank you for the Bible. And I pray, Lord, that every person here tonight would be a person of the Bible, reading God's word, studying God's word, applying it to our lives. And Lord, may we never live by anything else than this precious book that you've given us. Bless in our invitation tonight. We thank you, Lord, for everyone who's here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.